From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. I know I was only gone for a week and I was back on Friday, but like, it felt like a long time. You know, when you miss a Monday episode, it just, it just, it just doesn't sit right, you know? Well, yeah. and I feel like everyone has been waiting with, waiting with bated breath because, you know, not that you don't Just always share interesting, yeah. <laughs> not that you don't always share interesting things that you've been drinking, but when you travel, you're somewhere, you know, like, as you mentioned on the Friday episode, you're in Napa, Sonoma, San Francisco. Like, I think, I know you like to have the, uh, the hammer, uh, Adam, but I feel like you gotta, you gotta lead off here. You gotta tell us what you had. No. Yeah. <laughs> Do I've, been, I really? I've been dealing with dry Zach over here. So come on. Well, he he better not be today. I'm not. Because I looked and it's February. So uh, <laughs> thank God. I mean, no one is happier about this fact than me. I want to be clear. Yeah. Well, then just don't do it again. Like, it's like <laughs> again. I I feel like here's this thing. January is a horrible month. I've seen so many people post all these memes. You know, like why does January feel like the longest month ever? All this stuff. True. It really does too. So why 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 do you do that? To yourself? You ever heard the phrase? You know, you lean into the punch. Like it just, I just kind of compound all my misery in one month. It's all good. No, <laughs> but that's not true because there's still things to be miserable about in February and March and April. I'm aware. And, you know, come on, Elmo. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware. Elmo asked people how they were feeling last week, and they were not. Did you guys see this? No. Yes. Oh, it's, yeah, it went completely viral. Also, my former my former boss who ran the record label that I worked at is now the head of audience development for Sesame Street, Street Workshop. Oh, amazing. Um, but so he and his team posted just like Elmo was very innocently just asking, how's everybody doing today? Mm-hmm. And people like like wrote back like, not well, Elmo. <laughs> like a lot of people were like, we are not okay, including T-Pain, who oh. was really not okay. And Elmo had to write back that he was very happy that he checked in with his friends and we should check in with our friends more often. Oh. Because sometimes we're not doing okay, you know? I thought it was a really good lesson that we all need to remember because sometimes we're not okay. Yeah. We need to see how our friends are doing, not just, you know, talk to them when we think they're okay. Yeah. So uh, anyways, that's my, my mental health break. And we also need more mental health services in this country, but that's my mental health uh, break for the day. Um, but yeah, that's why, like, also, mental, why, why do it to yourself? But okay, fine. I'll kick it off. It's what it, it, it is. What it is. Um, so before I got sick and drank nothing, uh, I was in California the week prior. Um, so yeah, so we're just going to, like, we're going to completely just wipe out last week because I literally had no alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had my own version of dry January. Um, <laughs> but I had some, I had some interesting uh, things to drink in both San Francisco and in Napa and Sonoma. First, in San Francisco, I got to check out PCH, Pacific Cocktail Hub, which okay. is one of the top 50 bars in the country or world, according to that organization that we kind of think is BS. But whatever. I uh, it was, You still went. Yeah. We, well, we were taken there, and it was literally across the street from our hotel, weirdly. Okay. Um, it was way bigger than I expected it to be. Like, it was a very, very large bar. Uh, I had the like the Negroni that they're known for, which is like a coconut pandan Negroni or whatever flavored. I just realized I'm really not into flavored Negroni. It's just not my thing. I agree with you. It's just not my thing. They're just like not worth it. Yes. You know? And like this one, because the Campari is still bitter, there was something going on that my palate did not like. Mm. It was just like off, you know? Like, you know, like sometimes when you drink something, you're just like, huh, is there is there arsenic in this? That's kind of what I was feeling. <laughs> like, I never think that. I'm never going to be welcome I back never, there ever, ever again. Uh, I love, I, like, otherwise the bar seemed great. I just, it was, and I only had one drink. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, 
Yeah. But that wasn't for me. Um, had a nice bottle of raft wine hmm. um, at dinner one night. That was great. And then we did something that was really cool. So I met up with Alex, who was our psalm of uh, the year this year. Uh, at Little Saint. At Little Saint, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we hung out for a little bit, and she opened some really great wines, including Julie Lalade, uh other, she opened Monterio Cellars, Patrick Capiello. I'd never had it. Oh, neat. Uh, yeah, Patrick, man, doing some some good shit, dude. That was some that was some nice wine. And then she told me that when she was prior to being a um, a psalm, the beverage director at Little Saint, she was a psalm at a very famous restaurant in uh, that area. And one of the things that they used to do quite often was they would ask the psalm to choose two wines blind. A Sonoma Pinot and a of similar quality and price Burgundy, mm-hmm. and taste them side by side. So of course that's exactly what I did when I went to dinner that night. Mm-hmm. Um, Shocker! I preferred the Burgundy. It's fine. It happens. Uh, my <laughs> my guest from California preferred the Sonoma, but I think it's because she has a Sonoma palate. That's all good. You know. Sonoma palate. Well, she's from Sonoma. She knows the Sonoma Pinot Noirs. Like I just don't drink as many Sonoma Pinot Noirs, but I drink more. Uh, that sounds so derogatory. She's real Sonoma palette. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say me. she had a Lodi palette. That would have been. <laughs> Whoa. Real don't say that. That's Lodi makes some good wines. Um, they do. They do. They do. Yeah. It'd be more like Zach saying. Zach has a real Washington palette. Yeah, that's what it'd be. It'd be more like, like a real Seattle palette. Uh, <laughs> but so, yeah. I, but it was fun. I hadn't done that in a while. And I was like this, and it was really fun to do with Rob and Allie who are with me as well from the team. Um and yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, then, gosh, I, we went to Cadet one night and um, said hi to Taylor and Aubrey, who are the owners, and they took us to their new spot, Chispa, mm-hmm. which Co- is cocktail bar, right? Well, Mescal? it was supposed to be a cocktail bar. Now it's a restaurant. It's fine. They admitted to me that <laughs> they promised me it would be a cocktail bar. <laughs> And then they decided literally three hours after having the meeting at Vine Pair, because they wanted to meet after the podcast we did where I talked about Snap has no nightlife, mm-hmm. and uh, that they still decided they needed to have a restaurant. And the food was good, so I understand what they're doing. But the cocktails were also great. Um, they're making their version of a clarified margarita, sort of okay. uh, with a lime cordial I thought was really cool, a la Maxwell, mm-hmm. a Reese from Mirate, Mirate mm-hmm. uh, which was amazing. Um, it was nice to have a little bit of tequila in the world of, of Napa wines. Um, gosh, I had a really old Frog's Leap Zinfandel Ooh. at Press that tasted like Pinot Noir. Hmm. Huh. It was awesome. And the Psalm told me that it would. He was like, I guarantee you we're going to pop this and you guys will think it's like a richer Pinot. And it really was, which also then makes me 100% convinced that there's a lot of Pinots on the market that are under $15. Coming out of California, they're for sure putting Syrah and Zinfandel in that shit. <laughs> because they got to get rid of those grapes somehow, and it works. So that was really fun. Um, yeah, all in all, great time. Had a had a nice – oh, I had a Rob Roy with the team. So Allie and Rob and I, before we went to dinner on the last night, Thursday, we went over uh, to Ad Hoc because it was near where our hotel was just out at the bar. And had Rob Roy's because it was Burns Night. Oh, there you go. So there that, had to be a reason. That was fun. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> had a Rob Roy. Rob Roy is my grandfather's drink, but I hadn't had a Rob Roy in a while. Uh, so that was that was a great time too. And yeah, and that's what I've been drinking, and I'm done. <laughs> Good, Zach, you go. Better be fucking alcohol. <laughs> it is no. I I had the. I got to go to a, uh, a Walla Walla Valley trade test. No, not cider. We already covered cider, man. I'm I'm moving on. That was weeks ago. Uh, 
All right, a Walla Walla Valley trade tasting event uh, this past week that was uh, really interesting. Tried a lot of wines, um, taste a lot of different things. But uh, I think that stand out to me, or one of the things that stood out to me, because uh, I think it's an interesting, uh, it was a good wine, and an interesting story was uh, a wine called White on White by Foundry Vineyards, which is a sort of a white Rhone-styled blend of Marsan, Grenache Blanc, and Roussan. But I think the thing that's more interesting to me was talking to the uh, person who's running the winery these days, because... I had encountered Foundry Vineyards like not that long after it was founded. And I remember tasting the like they sort of like a Foundry Red. And it was a really fine wine, but like nothing particularly remarkable. And I remember like tasting a couple of the other wines being like, huh, you know, these are, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of your your run of the mill Walla Walla wines. And I tried a lot of the wines that they had uh, at the tasting the other day, including they have a whole sort of second project called Pet Project, which is all uh, Petit Natural Wines. And I was just really taken aback at how interesting and dynamic they were. And I was kind of like, what happened? Like, how did things change? And uh, what the woman who runs the winery now was telling me was that she and her brother had sort of their dad had founded the winery and planted the vineyard and and had sort of because he was interested in it, but he didn't he wasn't the winemaker. He'd hired a, a you know sort of a winemaker to to make the wine, and that person had been a sort of traditionally trained kind of um, you know person who took a, a standard approach to wine that you know kind of commonplace throughout the West Coast, not super interventionist, but just kind of you know making wine the way that they were taught to make wine. And eventually, uh, when this woman and her brother got more interested in kind of being involved and her brother in particular was interested in making wine they kind of decided as a family like hey we're gonna we're gonna move on from this person we're gonna like do more of this we're gonna convert to doing more kind of organic viticulture we're gonna kind of make wine differently and it was strikingly noticeable and and not to say that i loved every last thing that they did but just kind of an interesting story about how that kind of evolution is happening all over the country in wine i am i am very confident so yeah it's interesting to me nice joanna anything for you that stood out I know you've yeah. uh, been a little uh, bit limited. Yeah, not uh, <laughs> didn't have too much uh, this past week. Did make some margaritas, which I don't usually make at home. Why? Because um, I don't often have limes. But you know, you know what can solve that for you? What the bodega? I know. Do you know how close you probably live to a bodega? <laughs> I think I like a blo- you live a block away from a bodega, yes, probably. Yes. Yeah. You live in New York City. I know. Okay, I wasn't sure. I tend to make. A- Drinks that don't require fresh fresh citrus, unless I have some mm. forethought. Anyway, mm. made some margaritas; those were good, and then had some. What kind of margarita? A uh, regular Cointreau margarita. Okay. I don't usually do uh, Tommy's margaritas. You're uh, a Cointreau. Oh, I don't have agave. You know what else solves that for you? <laughs> the bodega. <laughs> Anyways, uh, continue. I like Cointreau. Yeah, I do too. Anyway. I think it makes a good margarita. Yeah. Also had some. Uh, beers from which i got at the bodega <laughs> from this brewery i can't say it it's this brazilian brewery it's called wait it's... your bodega had brazilian beers yes yeah, well a lot of the bodegas in new york city have excellent craft beer yeah selections and the, our local one happens to have really good craft beer anyway it's it's so it's brazilian brewery and so this is portuguese and it's whatever i'm just gonna say it i'm gonna anglicize it it's Japas, I don't know, Japas Cervejaria, I don't know. Anyway. I just want to be clear. If your bodega Japas? has really good craft beer from Brazil, you had limes. And probably agave nectar. I told you I had limes this time. <laughs> anyway. Excellent beer. Uh, basically, it's this Brazilian brewery with Japanese flavors. Ooh. And I had a beer called 
Black Daruma, which is a stout made with uh, persimmon, I want to say. And that was that was really good. That sounds nice. Yeah. So their beers are really interesting, um, if if not something if not expected, I guess. And uh, yeah, I'd like to try some more of them. We did a we did a a Q and A with the founders a few years ago on the site. So um, yeah. Cool. I wish I could pronounce it better, but if you speak Portuguese, please <laughs> please help. Yeah. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Well, I thought that this was interesting. There was data that came out uh, from Nielsen uh, IQ uh, recently (laughs) that basically said that they were looking at basically the quarterly sales tracker for um, specifically cocktail sales. And they saw a 13% growth in cocktail sales over the last quarter. Um, But the value and velocity in the late night period, what they consider the, the the late night periods from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Take that for what you want. Who's? I mean, I guess some people are drinking cocktails at 4 a.m., but not me. Um, was down 9% year on year, while it increased 6% in the early evening, which is considered 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., and even higher increase in the what's considered afternoon from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. of 16%. And we've been talking about this a lot, that basically what we're seeing, what we've seen is the early bird economy, right? It's It's booming. Um, and I think that this data is really interesting because it proves that that's what's happening, that we're, our behaviors are shifting and we're going out to drink earlier. The other thing that this showed is that not only is our behavior shifting, but we are going out more on Fridays and Saturday nights and staying in more on the weekends. So it said that the growth also was 16% growth of going out and drinking out on Saturdays and 9% growth of going out and drinking out on Fridays. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot at play here, but overall I think what this shows is that as, especially for operators and and for brands, they have to be aware of like when the consumer is going to be at home Mm -hmm. consuming and when the consumer is going to be out. And I think there's a lot of reasons for people staying in now, right? First of all, we got used to staying in during COVID. Yeah. Secondly, there's a lot of things that we feel like are must-watch that are happening. For example, two weeks ago, the NFC Championship had more had as many viewers as last year's Super Bowl. Oh. Right. So it's a Sunday. Is that night. unprecedented? Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was the largest uh, audience. Okay. Netflix has again reported banner earnings. Right. So the stock price is like through the roof. So people continue to sign up for Netflix, continue to watch Netflix. So all of these things, I think, are are driving. We can't think about alcohol as being in a bubble, right? So when people are at home, they may not be thinking necessarily about drinking with the food they're eating. They're instead thinking about drinking with the occasions that they're taking part in, the things that they're viewing, right? So what alcohol fits into watching the NFC Championship or what alcohol fits into watching, uh, what's it called, Esmeralda? Is that the new one uh, on, uh, is it Esmeralda on Netflix? It's the new Sofia Vergara movie uh, show. Oh, Griselda. Griselda, not Esmeralda. Griselda. Jeez, I'm an idiot. I was thinking there was like a new live action, uh, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame or something. Griselda, right? About the about the the the. She's you know the the original cocaine queen of Miami. It's a her. Is this a Disney movie or is this a show? It's about cocaine. Do you think it's a Disney movie? I don't know what you were talking about. I don't know what you guys watch with Matt. (laughs) (laughs) That's Miss Rachel right there. Do you watch it? Mm, sometimes if I have to cut his nails. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but uh but I but I think it's really interesting and like I I do think that we are driving towards at least for the moment becoming an earlier going out society. And I think that the problem is that this whole group's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. 
well, <laughs> we are we are key contributors to this trend. But um, I, what I think is more interesting, in a way, I mean, the going out part early is really interesting, and I think we should absolutely talk about some of the implications for this for yeah. bars and restaurants. But I also think in here, and you mentioned it, is also the sort of more stark bifurcation of going out versus not. And I think, in a way, what's really interesting to me about this kind of data is you know, you can pin it to there being appointment viewing. I don't know that I would argue that there's more appointment viewing now than there ever has been. I mean, you think about the kind of ratings that like sitcoms used to get and and how people would order their lives around being home on whatever night of the week it was that they wanted to watch whatever the big thing was. But I think more than it, it's that whether solely because of COVID or just kind of, again, accelerated because of that, staying in has felt never felt more comfortable for people and has involved less you know, if you're the kind of person who's like, well, I don't really want to cook, but I can still stay home and get anything delivered to my doorstep. Mm-hmm. I can have a huge suite of things to watch or or kind of have on in the background. And all of those things make going out more difficult, the sort of barrier that you have to clear more difficult. And I think, you know, as is mentioned in a piece in the in Bloomberg not that long ago, I think the other part of this is we have to look at who drives some of this going out behavior. And you think about how single people mingling in bars was a big part of the bar economy for a long oh, time. Yeah. And so much of this behavior has moved to, you know, online platforms, to dating apps and things like that. And like, I met my wife on a dating app. So this is not me making any claims about like, hey, this is a thing that people, there's no judgment here. It's just a thing, an observation that when one of the key functions of a lot of kind of establishments was providing either the meeting place for people in that kind of milieu or in some cases, even I think, you know, places where you'd have early dates and maybe now that's shifting to different kinds of venues. Maybe more of that is happening in a online or not fully in-person format. I don't really know. Again, uh, been married for a while, not really in the dating scene. <laughs> I do think that that behavior is also really interesting and ties into this, even if it's also if because it's, it's coming along with this shift earlier. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that those two things would be moving in tandem. Yeah, I mean, I think we also have to consider expense mm-hmm. here, right? Like, yeah, sure. we've we've talked about um, how, especially in New York and and cities like New York and Seattle, that everything is much more expensive, and people are either willing to go out and and spend that money and have expectations about the experience that they're going to get. And sometimes that falls short, right? You're getting feeling, you feel like you're getting smaller cocktails for more money. Um, And then I think just coming out of the pandemic, there was this, yeah, uh, willingness to, well, necessity to be drinking at home. And then everybody was like, okay, now we can go out again after whatever, after quote unquote, the pandemic, you can go back out. And then it was cripplingly expensive and people are like okay i can be home again yeah like getting used we got used to it then we're able to you know it's not like a we're not kept in we're not shut in anymore it's our choice and i also just think like people got good at making cocktails and people got used to drinking at home and good at drinking at home within reason right moderation right it's not it's not this idea of like staying home and just like drinking to excess but i think um that's definitely factored into this i think another part and uh zach i know you wanted to talk about this is how operators are how it's affecting operators and how they're dealing with it and this is something that we've talked about 
uh, on the editorial team before, but in New York specifically, we've definitely seen a lot of restaurants launching this idea of like an aperitivo hour yes. and opening yeah. for service in between like a lunch lunch shift um, and dinner shift and or just like opening before dinner shift, right? If it's not a restaurant that's open for lunch and having a limited menu, but cocktails like they are they are noticing this behavior, right? Yeah. And trying to capitalize on it because uh, this is what people want. Yeah. I mean, look, I think we've had readers and listeners who've emailed in and said, listeners in this, in this case, <laughs> like that they'll like have a drink before they go out at home and then they'll go out and they'll have a drink or a bottle of wine and they'll come home and they'll have another drink because it's so expensive out mm-hmm. and they'll yeah. and that's partly if you go out early enough then you can easily come home i think the other thing we can't um discredit here is people really the other big movement that's happening at the same time of all of this is the health movement and by the and the biggest thing you're hearing in the health movement is a focus on sleep yeah and sleep is becoming a really big thing as to like the one key that you need to unlock to be a healthier person. People are wearing these fucking rings. Right. They're tracking on their watch. I mean, I have so many people that tell me I slept really good last night. I slept really poorly last night. They're watching their sleep habits. Mm-hmm. And we know that research proves that if you go to bed within about an hour and a half of having your last drink, you will not sleep as well as if you are awake for a few hours and then go to bed, even if you drank that night, right? Mm-hmm. If you give yourself two to two and a half hours of being awake before hitting the pillow after having a night out, you will still have a pretty good night's sleep. And if you do less than that, you won't. And the people who, I mean, look, can't, Huberman is one of the most popular podcasts in America. He's a huge proponent of this. Dr. Peter Atya is a huge proponent of this. Lots of these gurus are pushing sleep as like the key unlock that less sleep causes Alzheimer's, that less sleep causes heart problems, that less sleep causes memory, all these you know, muscle fatigue, all mm-hmm. these things are caused by sleep. So then naturally people would start saying, huh, well, then why do I want to go out so late? I want to go. I want to have dinner at six or six thirty, be home by nine still be awake for an hour and a half or two hours, hit the bed at 8, 11, 30, wake up and still have my good seven hours and have quality sleep. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's something that everyone is thinking about now more than they used to. And intermittent for sure. intermittent fasting, yes. right? They're all doing intermittent fasting, right? So this is when they can break their fast. Then they, they end their fast. Stop eating at they eight. They stop eating at eight and then they're home yep. and they can intermittent fast again. It's all working into this like healthy lifestyle. Again, I do think that's this is a trend coming out of COVID. Who knows how long this trend lasts? So I think all of this is influencing how early we go out. Yeah. I think Friday and Saturday nights, the peaks also make sense because those tend to be people's cheat days mm-hmm. in general, right? So you're okay maybe going out a little bit later even and having a little bit less quality of sleep because it's the weekend and like that's kind of what you're supposed to do on the weekend. So that's well, also really you interesting. Might not have to get up so early. Yeah. And then the <laughs> other thing is that Yeah, exactly, except for us. But then <laughs> yeah, uh, then the other thing though that is I I think influencing this is that this group of people is doing this. So less people are being so less people are in the restaurant at night that later. And I don't know about you guys, but like it kind of sucks at some point being one of the last people in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like it uh-huh. just does. There's no more energy, and you can tell the staff wants you to go the fuck home because they yeah. want to go yeah. home. And even if you snag that reservation at eight thirty or eight forty five, and you thought that was a prime reservation, or the only reservation you can get, if you're sitting there at eleven, eleven fifteen, and chairs are starting to get stacked, which happened to me twice when I was in California. Mm-hmm. 
it stinks. Yeah. Even if like it just is what it is, it's not your fault. It's when you were seated, it's not fun anymore. And so if all of yeah. the fun is happening between 6.30 and 8.30 at night, then that's when you want to be there. Yeah. And I wonder to some extent if you're going to see restaurants kind of do almost like, you know, lean into something like late night happy hour. Because for part of a part of the thing for a restaurant is that you have to have for a restaurant to make financial success or financial sense in most cases, you need to have uh, people in the restaurant for more than just a few hours. Like it is rarely hard to make most restaurant concepts work off of one or one and a half turns, even if you're super busy. And look, there are exceptions. You know, you're a really high end fine dining restaurant with an elaborate tasting menu. Maybe you're only doing one seating a night or, you know, whatever. There are some concepts that maybe can withstand this. But when, you know, I, I saw this firsthand, you know, the, the first moment that this really crystallized to me, which was many years ago now was as the sort of restaurant industry in Seattle was growing and expanding. And at the same time as, you know, sort of there were uh, economic impacts from recession and stuff like that, we noticed that like the first thing to go were the, you know, the non-peak reservations, right? It was the early in the, at that time, the early in the evening reservations and anything after 8.30 at night, even on the weekend. And the problem is that for a lot of restaurants, you just cannot make a go of it if you're only seating people functionally for, like I said, you know, two or three hours in the course of an evening, even on a busy night, a Friday or Saturday night. And again, no matter how busy you get in that moment, your restaurant concept is not built around one turn, I hope. Uh, Or actually, if it is good for you, I suppose. In any case, can't be though. (laughs) Yeah, and so you know, for a long time, restaurants would incentivize people in early with happy hours, right? Restaurants and bars would say, "Hey, we know that most people don't really want to be out doing this at five or five thirty or six, but we believe we can bring people in by giving them, you know, cheaper food, cheaper drinks, or at least the illusion thereof, and we're going to entice people to come in and." Late night happy hour is a thing that, I, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced in various places. It's something that you see from place to place. But, you know, in a way, restaurants have to be adaptable and move their, you know, if the, if the time, if the prime dining window in places is now six o'clock, if that's when people want the tables, you got to find ways to get people in at those other hours. And, and it may mean moving promotions around. It may mean moving staffing around. It may mean kind of rejiggering things but but i agree with you adam that we can't know at this point how long lived this kind of trend will be but i would bet against it being a super it, it being a mere blip like i think yeah it's not i i just think that the pieces that you described the the sort of health elements the people's increased awareness of the importance of sleep people's less willingness to sacrifice that and i think to some extent a piece of this too is for restaurant workers those people are also perhaps not as inclined to be working super late nights, especially if the business isn't there. But even in some cases, if it is, I think, you know, we've places have to kind of balance all of these uh, inputs, all of these factors. And one of the ways to do that may be to reorient service around accommodating people earlier. Yeah, yeah I think that's one one piece. I also think the other piece is what you've said about the late night happy hour, which is that, you know, what we used to do is we used to say, how do we convince an older demographic to come out earlier and know that like they will get seated and have a great experience, et cetera, in a time when we already have staff on the floor at around five or five thirty, we have happy hour, right? Now basically everyone is saying we want to go out earlier because we want to prioritize sleep, health, etc. But there is always going to be a population of human beings, mostly those in their 20s, that can go forever and have a lot of stamina and don't need to work out as much as the rest of us and don't need to eat as healthy right now in that time of their life. 
and can go out later and can party all night. And But usually, unless they are hired right out of college to work at BlackRock, uh, they also have you know, a smaller income for the most part. Right. And so if you can incentivize, hey, after 10, from 10 to, you know, if, if your reservation is from 10 to 1130 or from 930, whatever place you live in, nine, whatever, we have specials on the menu. We have half price drinks. We have tiny teenies. We have whatever. I think you could draw that group in because they don't mind being up later. I loved being out late when I was younger. I don't I don't want to be now as much. There are times that I want that I do it and I'm like, what that was the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> yeah, like, but that's what that's what dive bars are for. Like that's where we would go, right? After dinner you yes, go out to dive. Because bars. that's what you could afford. But yeah, now, you'd have there's PBRs and shit. But now if everyone's chasing saying that they're eating at all the cool kids' spots. Yep. Why not go to the cool kid spot later at night when there's also a deal? Yeah. Right? And it allows that spot to do more turns. Because I agree with Zach. Like, there's got to – the problem is that this moving earlier works, right, on on Saturday and Sunday. When we can go earlier and they can be open at 4 or 5, I really don't understand the economics of these places that are doing the aperitivo hours and stuff like that in New York when we all still work till 6. Right. Because – it is very hard to justify doing that. Yeah. Well. Now, I guess if you're working from home, et yeah. cetera. But if you, but now if you're reading all that press, we're not going to get into that on today's podcast. But like, there's now this new discussion of whether or not this that is working because hybrid employees are not doing okay. Elmo told me, <laughs> like, they're not happy, right? And that is because they're not having community. They're not talking to each other. They're not meeting. They're not meeting with their coworkers. Their bosses. They're not getting mentorship. So I think we're going to start seeing more in the next few years returns to the office which then also means that like the earliest most people get off the office is five o'clock sure that that time period is going to be in such high demand for that early reservation now when it used to not be used to be like oh cool like we're going to dinner at eight and i'm going to like go to drinks with my coworkers before i go to that work dinner now it's like no work dinner is at 5 30 and i'm still home at nine so what happens on those weeknights because zach is right as someone that worked in a restaurant you can't sustain that business if you can't do more than one turn a night. Right. It just doesn't work. Hmm. Especially in New York where the rents are insane. Yeah. I also want to add one last piece to this, which is I, I'm not sure how these things uh, all interact. But, you know, Adam, when you were just talking about now about <clears throat> work dinners and things like that made me think about, you know, another thing that we've been sort of – I've been sort of monitoring, I think we've all been sort of monitoring is, you know, what does corporate dining culture look like post COVID? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I get to see this in a way front and center with my family because, you know, my wife does a fair bit of <clears throat> a variety of kinds of dining out, uh, entertaining clients, stuff like that over in, in her job. And, you know, different uh, clients, you know, some that are more kind of or I should say different businesses, some that are more kind of client facing may still be doing lots of dining out. But like a thing that became very true in Seattle in particular, and I'm sure in other places with huge tech presence is like the big tech companies and stuff like that are not generally businesses with big cultures of like, Hey, we're going to go out and spend a lot of money in restaurants, whether Mm -hmm. it's on our clients, whether it's on our teams, et cetera, with, you know, a few exceptions here and there. And, but when they do, it's often in this window, right? It's the, post work, we're going to just kind of all convene at a restaurant, especially if it's a team dinner or something like that. It's not a, you know, everyone go home, change, come back and go out at 730 or eight. And so if you have this big driver of restaurant profitability, right, these sort of expense account dinners and stuff like that, slamming up against the broader consumer 
demand, right, which is also perhaps for these earlier time slots that used to be more the purvey of either older diners or people in these kind of, you know, business dinner settings where people maybe wanted to get back to their hotel afterwards and work or sleep or whatever, go out somewhere else, etc. You're going to have even more, you're getting even more perhaps demand for this window, which used to be less contested. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there are still behaviors that need to we need to see what will happen like with this whole work working remotely thing like will that ever fully go back i don't know and i think only time will tell yeah it's it's we're still in such a weird transition i think obviously we're always but there was for a long time there was very fixed ways of behaving and working and we're st- it's going to be a few more years before that all kind of gets solidified. And I was like, oh yeah, everyone works from home on Friday. I don't know anyone that doesn't work from home on Friday. Or yeah, like everybody I know works from home, you know, goes in Monday through Wednesday, whatever that is. Um, and then at least in, in certain cities, and I think that will affect what's happening. But right now that's also why it's so hard for hospitality because you don't really know when the demand is coming and when it's going. Yeah. All we know right now is that people like Zach are really destroying January. <laughs> <coughs> Yes, it's all my fault. That's right. That was my last one. That was my last dig at dry January, but I had to. It was just like, (laughs) you know, I I missed last week. I had to make up. I took took my Monday episode from dry January, and I I, I borrowed it for for my first February Monday. You know, just I had to like most people. Very good. Anyways, uh, let us know what you think about all this early dining out. Are you an early bird as well? Um, So are my grandparents. Uh, Hit us up at vinepair at... No. Podcast is fine. See, I, I, need, I need to go to bed. You got to prioritize sleep, you guys. Mm-hmm. You got to prioritize sleep. Podcast is com. Let us know what you think. And I'll see you both here on Friday. Have a great week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.